Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is First Peter chapter four, where my Bible is opened up to. Going to notice a little expression that's used in First Peter chapter four, and that expression will set the stage for our entire study this morning. Let's get those Bibles out and be turning them to First Peter chapter four. Let's be ready to look in the Word of God and see what it has to say. As you're finding First Peter chapter four, let me just join in the welcome from earlier. What a what a great number we have in attendance this morning. Have lots of guests with us, lots of first timers, and we're so thankful that you're here with us today. And it's just it's just a beautiful fall morning, a wonderful time for us to be together. And this is this is my absolute favorite Sunday of the year. Can you can you guess why? Yeah, it's that fall back thing, getting that extra hour of sleep. I, I'm still trying to figure out why we can't do that every Saturday night. Makes me wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and I hope you're of that same mind and you feel the same way, that you're eager and excited to be about the business of God's Word for these next few moments. Let's get right to it. In First Peter chapter 4, Peter is discussing about being good stewards of the various gifts and abilities that God has given to us. And he says the following in verse 11. Notice just the first part of verse 11. First Peter 4 verse 11, Peter says that if any man speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If you've been a Christian for very long, then you have probably heard this expression before, Bible words in Bible ways. That's a handy little phrase that was probably coined back during the Restoration Movement As brethren, we're just making the plea for folks to call Bible things by Bible names and use Bible words in Bible ways. And in all likelihood, that expression probably was born out of the thoughts of 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, where Peter says, if we're going to speak, let's speak as the oracles of God. And that's a mighty important concept. Because it speaks to taking Scripture, taking it very, very carefully approaching Scripture very, very carefully. That whenever we open up the Bible, we're going to take these words as they are, as the very words of God. And we're going to study those words. We're going to find out what those words mean in their context. And then we're going to use those words. We're going to apply those words in the way that God intended. Using Bible words in Bible ways. That is a principle that is so crucial to our understanding of the Scriptures and it ought to govern everything that we do as Christians and as a church. Because the truth of the matter is, much of the confusion, much of the error, much of the false doctrine that exists in the religious world today is the result of people using Bible words. They're just not using them in the Bible way. Let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Imagine this morning that there are three preachers standing before you. Me and two other guys. Can you can you guess which one of those is me? I made that very handy for you to follow along. And each of us, all three of us in turn, we're all going to present to you a lesson on the subject of baptism. Baptism is most certainly a Bible word. And in fact, we're all three going to use the same passage as we preach together. And the passage we're going to use is Acts 2 and verse 38. You know Acts 2.38, don't you? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, this fellow over here, he reads that verse and he says, you need to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins. I then read Acts 2.38 and I too say, you need to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins. 
This fellow over here, he reads Acts 2.38 and he also says you need to repent and be baptized in order to be forgiven of your sins. Now all three of us have used Bible words. Repent, baptism, forgiveness, sins. And we've all even used Scripture while we've done that. The problem is, the problem is we don't all mean the same thing. When this guy over here, when he says baptism... What he means is the sprinkling of water on the forehead of a baby because of their inherited sin. That's what he means when he talks about baptism. When I say baptism, I'm simply talking about being immersed in water as a penitent believer to have your sins washed away and to be raised up something new in Christ. However, when this guy says baptism, he isn't even talking about water at all. He's talking about just a spiritual experience. He's talking about a metaphorical immersion, an immersion in the power of the Holy Spirit to cleanse your soul. That's what he means when he uses the word baptism. Now, all three of us, we have used Bible words. Yet all three of us are teaching three completely different doctrinal ideas. Now the question is, how do we determine which one of us three is using the Bible word in the Bible way? Well, that's where we've got to do some work, isn't it? That's where we need to get in the book and we need to do some studying. And so what would we do? Well, maybe we would start by by just maybe getting some definitions in order. Maybe we would try to define that word baptism. Maybe we'd pull out a lexicon and we find out that that Greek word baptizo, that it means an immersion. Then maybe we'd open up our Bibles and we'd flip to the back, to that concordance back there, and we'd look up the word baptism or baptize, and we'd just compile all the verses in the New Testament that use that term, and we'd start reading those verses. And as we're reading those passages and reading them in their context, what would we come to see? We'd come to see that baptism, it's not sprinkling, that it is an immersion. It is a burial, as Romans 6 describes it. And it is a burial in actual water, not metaphorical, it's actual water. We would read Acts 8 about Philip and the eunuch, how they both went down into the water. Furthermore, we'd read verses like Mark 16, 16, and we'd see that baptism must be preceded by faith and belief. That it is for the washing away of sins, Acts 22, 16. And that it does, in fact, save us, 1 Peter 3, 21. And by the time we're done looking at all of those verses and looking at them in their context, how that word is used and the way that it's intended to be used, what would we conclude? We would come to conclude that these two guys, their arguments, they don't hold water and that only the truth, only the truth stands out. Now, that's a pretty easy illustration. That's a simple illustration with a Bible word that we, we use with great regularity and we talk about an awful lot. It wouldn't take us very long to figure out what God intends when He talks about that word baptism. And I want to say to you that we need to be ready to do that same kind of process with any Bible topic, with any Bible word. Just because it's found in the Bible and just because you can quote it, that doesn't mean that you understand it. That means we have to do some work. We have to do some legwork, do some study, and get in the Word so that we can truly speak as the oracles of God. Well, this morning, I want us to be able to do that very thing. And I want us to be able to do that with a Bible word that may prove to be a little more challenging than that word baptism. And in all candor, this is a word that for the longest time, I have just been very, very uncomfortable with. And the reason for that is, is because this word is just so often misused and misunderstood, particularly amongst brothers and sisters in the Lord's church. 
And the word that I am talking about this morning is the word fellowship. Fellowship. That is a word that appears several times in your New Testament. And it is a really important word. And it's a word that we want to figure out what it means and how it applies and how all of that works. And so, let's just, let's just begin by bringing our three preachers back up here. Got one guy over here on my right and one guy on my left. And I'm going to stay right here in the middle. This is where I work. This is my office. So I'm staying right here. And all three of us this morning, in turn, we are going to preach a lesson on the subject of fellowship. And all three of us, once again, we're all going to use the same verse. We're going to use Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Would you find Acts 2, 42? In Acts 2 and verse 42, I hope you are already familiar with the context of Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter's preached the first gospel sermon. People are pricked in their hearts by that. And as a result, 3,000 souls respond in repentance and in baptism. They are added to the Lord's body. They're added to the church. Then Luke gives us some more details in verse 42 when he says that those Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And so Acts 2.42, that's the basis for this lesson. And so this first guy, he reads Acts 2 verse 42 and he says, Christians ought to have fellowship. I then read Acts 2.42 and I say, Christians ought to have fellowship. This guy reads Acts 2.42 and he says, Christians ought to have fellowship. That's wonderful. Problem is, we all three mean different things. For example, this fellow over here, he says that fellowship means enjoying one another, spending time together socially, getting to know one another on a one-on-one kind of basis. This fellow would probably be quick to point out that later on in Acts chapter 2, that those early Christians, they, they ate their meals together. And so he connects in his mind fellowship with social interaction, going bowling together, eating dinner together, because by his definition, that is fellowship. In fact, if you visited that fellow's church, that building would probably look quite a bit larger than ours. Because in the name of fellowship, there would be a dining hall for all kinds of eating to go on. There'd be a gymnasium for us to play ball in. And when you go to that brother and you ask, hey brother, where do you get the authority for those kinds of things? What would he say? Well, in all likelihood, he would say Acts 2.42. Fellowship. That's what fellowship is all about. Well, this guy standing over here on the other side of me, he's shaking his head and he's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. That guy is way off base. Fellowship in the New Testament is never used in the sense of social interaction. And I'm kind of, yeah, that's a pretty good point to make. But then this fellow goes on to say that fellowship, fellowship means that you must have 100% agreement on every Bible issue. That you must see everything the exact same way. And I'm not just talking about big stuff like baptism for the remission of sins or the Lord's Supper every first day of the week. No, 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 no. I mean that we must share in common every single belief regardless of our maturity levels regardless of the role that study and growth plays in all of this no we have to see eye to eye on every single issue and if we don't then we do not have fellowship i tell you this that guy he's lonely he is very very lonely he's just standing there by himself because he's up here flapping his gums about fellowship fellowship this fellowship that but by his definition there probably aren't very many people who are in fellowship with him And so what do we have? we got two guys, and they're both using a Bible word, 
yet they mean radically different things. I stand here in the middle and I say that both of them are fools. I don't think that either one of these guys are using that Bible word in the Bible way. Now, of course, just because I say that, that doesn't make it so. What do we need to do? We need to get in the book. We need to do a little bit of work. We're going to have to let God decide for us through His Word what those Bible words are and the way that those words ought to be used. And so let's talk about fellowship. And maybe a good place for us to start would be to just get some definitions out of the way. In Acts 2 and verse 42, there is a word that is used there that's translated fellowship. And I don't often try to pronounce Greek words from the pulpit for fear of making a big fool of myself. However, this Greek word is an easy one to say, and I actually like saying it. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia. I just like saying that word. You don't get to say that word right now. You have to be quiet. You can say it after church. Koinonia. Koinonia is a word that is found in the New Testament 20 times. 20 times, and for your convenience, don't try to write all those down. You can pick up one of the sermon note sheets in the back. It's got all of those verses for your handy reference. 20 times that word is found in the New Testament. And the word just simply means an association, a communion, a joint participation, a sharing together in something. It is when two or more people share in the same thing. Now the question that we have as we're looking at Acts 2 and verse 42 is... Well, what are we sharing in? What exactly are we jointly participating in? What is it that you have in common with me and I have in common with you? Well, we need a little bit of context, don't we? And instead of going all over the Bible and looking at all those verses, let's just stay right here in Acts chapter 2. Look in Acts 2, just back up a few verses. Let's go back to verse 38. Acts 2 verse 38, that's where Peter tells these folks, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. And so those who received His word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, those Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, as I look again at verse 42, I see at least three things in that verse that are most definitely spiritual activities that those early Christians did together. First of all, they kept studying together. They kept listening to the teaching of the apostles and growing in the Word. Secondly, the text says that they kept praying together, praying with one another. That's an important thing for Christians to do. And then thirdly, that term that's used there, the breaking of bread. That is a term that is used in the New Testament frequently to describe the partaking of the Lord's Supper. Those early Christians, they had communion. They communed together in the remembrance of Christ's body and His blood. And then we have that word, fellowship. Now based on what we just read, backing up to verse 38, fellowship then is a sharing in common of what? What is it that we share in common? What we share is we share a relationship in Jesus Christ. We share the spiritual blessing of having confessed Jesus as our Lord, having been buried with Him in baptism, and that is a connection that we now have one with another. We share together in eternal life. And so when the Bible says that they devoted themselves to fellowship, what's that saying? 
That's saying that they devoted themselves to their shared relationship as Christians. And they did that through the study of the Word, through prayer, through the observance of the Lord's Supper, and even through other spiritual activities. Those other verses talk about some other things, like even being involved in benevolence. Now, somebody's probably going to be quick to point out as I submit that is the definition of this Word and how that Word is used in the Bible. Somebody's going to be quick to point out, now Josh, hold on. Didn't in Acts 2, didn't those brethren, didn't they eat their meals together? Talking about keeping stuff in its context. Drop down to verse 46. What's it say there? It says that they were eating food together. Hey, what about food in all of this? And indeed, indeed they did eat food together. But I want to submit to you that the eating of the meals together, that is not the fellowship. They did not share in common a casserole, okay? They shared in common a relationship as the people of God. And then as a natural outgrowth of that, people who are in fellowship, what are they probably going to do? They're probably going to spend a lot of time together. They're probably going to be with one another. Because I have fellowship with you in Jesus, then naturally I am going to want to spend time with you and do things with you. We are going to go across the street and we're going to eat tacos together. We are going to play basketball together. We are going to laugh together. Our kids are going to play together. But I want to say again, that social interaction, that is not the fellowship. The fellowship is that we share together in the blood of Jesus Christ our Savior. And I'm submitting to you this morning that in all 20 of those passages, that's how that term koinonia is used in the New Testament. In every single one of those verses, whether it's the word fellowship, or partnership, or communion, or participation, or contribution, depending on your particular translation you're reading from, it speaks of Christians sharing together in spiritual things because of our relationship in Christ Jesus. Let me direct your attention to a passage that I think really, really helps us here. And I think really demonstrates, maybe better than any other passage, what biblical fellowship is all about. It's in 1 John chapter 1. Would you find 1 John chapter 1 will be here for the remainder of our study? If you want to know whether you are in fellowship with someone, if you want to know what fellowship is built upon, if you want to know how fellowship behaves and conducts itself, then I think the best place you can go is 1 John chapter 1. The word fellowship appears four times in this chapter. And I want you to be watching for it as we read here and be thinking about, about how John is using that word. Let's read together. 1, Peter, or 1 John chapter 1 verse 1. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest. And we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and we proclaim to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His Word is not in us. Now, I hope you notice as we were reading that, I hope you notice there's a whole lot of fellowship going on in there. There is a shared participation being talked about. There is a sharing in common with all kinds of different parties here. First of all, verse 3 says, John says, that there is a fellowship between the apostles and with all other believers. The people that he's writing to, to Christians, and that would include even us. John says that if you get the message of this chapter, if you're doing what this chapter says, then you are now in fellowship with me and with all of the other apostles. But even more than that, John goes on to say in verse 3 that those apostles, they are in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So think about that. Us with the apostles. The apostles have fellowship with God. And this is beginning to show us something that is very, very key and very, very important. And that is that fellowship is not determined by time or place. Fellowship is not geographical and it is not to be dated. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. John says that you could be in fellowship with the apostles even if you lived a hundred miles away. Even if you lived 500 miles away, you could be in fellowship with the apostles. John said that he had fellowship with Jesus. And where was Jesus here? Jesus was all the way up residing in heaven. And I've got fellowship with him, John says. Even now, as I stand here before you this morning, here in 2016 America... I am in fellowship with the Apostle John, even though he lived on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago. And what that shows us is that fellowship is not about your location. Fellowship is not about sitting together in the same room. Fellowship is not about some kind of face-to-face, eye-to-eye sort of interaction. Those are things that we may do because we are in fellowship. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But what we see is we see that we can have fellowship with the Apostles, The apostles had fellowship with God. Then look at verse 6 again. Verse 6, John adds another layer to that. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, now John's talking about us. He's talking about how I can have fellowship with the Father and the Son. I can have fellowship with the Lord. Then he adds even a whole other layer to it. Verse 7 now. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Man, if we had the whiteboard out here and we were drawing a chart on this, we'd just have lines going every which way, wouldn't we? That I am in fellowship with the apostles, verse 3. The apostles are in fellowship with God, verse 3. God is in fellowship with me, verse 6. And me with you and you with I and us with one another, verse 7. And what all of those lines and all of those relationships help us to see, secondly, is that fellowship, fellowship is not determined by our social interaction with one another. Social interaction is not what is being discussed in 1 John chapter 1. Partially because you cannot socially interact with the apostles. They're dead. You can't do it. But even more so, because this is not a connection that is built on physical social things. This is not a connection based on having a potluck together, or playing in a softball league together, or going to Kings Island together, or even the way that we enjoy one another's company. Now, I want to say, those are all great things. Those are all wonderful things. But those are things that we choose to do because we are in fellowship. Those things are simply a byproduct, an outgrowth, if you will, of what we truly share with the Father and the Son and the Apostles, and that is eternal life. Now, somebody right about here is going to chime in and they're going to say, Now, Josh, hold on. I I use that word fellowship. I use it with, with some regularity. And when I say the word fellowship, 
I just kind of mean it in a, in a broad, general sense. You know, if you were to pull out Merriam-Webster's dictionary and you look up the word fellowship, what does it mean? It just means friendly association with people that you have things in common with. And so when I say that, that we went out and we had a cup of coffee and we had fellowship together, well, I just mean it in a broad, general kind of way. Okay, that's fine. I'm not outlawing you ever using that word in any other context. But you need to be very careful, Christian. You need to be careful about applying that term fellowship to the work of a church or even to what it means for us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Because having coffee together, that is not what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ is eternal life enjoyed through the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us brothers and sisters. Now it may seem up to this point, it may seem that I've really been picking on this guy over here who preaches that fellowship, what that means is that means social kinds of things. Let me say something though about this guy over here. Remember this guy? Brother, we have to be in 100% agreement on every single Bible doctrine. Well, thirdly, what 1 John 1 shows us is that fellowship, it is not determined, it is not determined by perfect conformity with one another on every single Bible doctrine. John wrote to some Christians here in 1 John chapter 1 who were in fellowship, but who understood that they could sin and that they could be wrong and that they had some growing that they needed to do. And I'll tell you the saddest thing about this guy over here. This guy over here who believes that that we can't be in fellowship unless we agree on every single issue, regardless of your maturity level, regardless of Bible study and growth and how that all works into all of this. The problem with this guy over here is that he has never considered the fact that he might be wrong. He might be missing it all together. It never even crossed his mind. This guy's just said, you know what, I've just decided that this is what it means. This is what all of this means and you have to agree with me. But in the New Testament, in the New Testament, that's not how genuine Christians function. That's not how disciples went about their business. In the New Testament, disciples shared the truth. They shared the truth about Jesus and about baptism and about faith in God's Word. And you know what they did once they shared that for the first time? They kept on sharing it and they kept on studying it. And they built on that fellowship even more through their study of God's holy word. And as a result, they did grow closer to one another. That bond of unity did become stronger. Fellowship, though, it is not determined by my specific conformity to some other person's set of standards. Which begs the question then, if fellowship is not determined by any of these things, well, how do we determine fellowship? How do we know if we are in fellowship with God and in fellowship one with another? What exactly is the test? Well, I believe that John gives us such a test in this passage. In fact, it's a three-part test. And I want to just say right now, very, very straightforwardly, brother or sister, if you or I cannot pass these three tests, then we are not in fellowship. If, however, you and I, if we pass all three of these tests together, then we do have fellowship in the blood of Jesus and in eternal life. And so let's find out if we are in fellowship. The first of those tests is found in the first four verses, and it is what I would call the hearing test. In order for us to share in common this relationship in Jesus we must continue to be open to hear the gospel. Look again at verse 1. 
John says, speaking as an apostle, he says that which was from the beginning. What we've heard, we've heard some things. John says we've seen some things with our eyes. We've looked upon, we've touched it with our hands concerning the word of life. He says that this life was made manifest and we saw it and we testified to it and we proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He's talking about Jesus. That's a big long description for Jesus. Verse 3, he says the things that we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. How would someone have fellowship with the Apostle John? John says by listening. John says, I have proclaimed to you the message of Jesus. And so you have to listen, hear, and receive the things that I and the other apostles have proclaimed. In fact, John goes on to say there in the very next verse, in verse 4, John says that even some of that stuff that I saw and I heard, I wrote it down. I wrote it down, which means you need to read that stuff. You need to get in the book and read those things about Jesus. You need to take that stuff in. You need to keep your heart open and pliable and moldable. And when you do that... We can be in fellowship. In fact, John repeats that repeatedly throughout this book. Look at the very next chapter. Look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John says, I'm writing some stuff. You need to read it. You need to read it and hear it and learn it and know who Jesus is and know who Jesus and what He's all about. John just keeps on reinforcing that same idea over the course of five chapters. And as it was true for his audience then, it is true also for us today. We've got to keep on reading and hearing and listening and learning and growing. Raise your hand right now if you think you're done with all of that. That's what I thought. Sometimes people joke about how preachers can never get full audience participation. Everybody's participating right now. Nobody's got their hand raised. And why is that? Because nobody in this room truly believes that they've they've heard it all. They've got it all figured out. They know everything that there is to know. There's nothing more that they could ever be taught. In fact, if you were to raise your hand right now and say that you do have it all figured out, we would all come and we would bow down at your feet. We'd give you a hug. We'd think you're special. But none of us are willing to say such a thing. However, I want to say to you that the very most dangerous thing, the most dangerous threat to Christian fellowship is whenever God's people, they may not say it out loud, but they think it in their minds, is when they think that they don't need to hear anymore. Oh, I already know that. I've already got all of that figured out. I decided on that a long time ago. I know that I'm right and I know that you're wrong. Let's just move on to something else. You see, we can, we can go out and we can eat together. And we can play ball together. And we can do all kinds of fun stuff together. We can even have our name in the same church directory. But if we're not willing to continue to hear and to study and to pursue after the truth together, then we're not in fellowship, regardless of what we tell ourselves. Fellowship comes whenever we are swift to hear, James 1 verse 19. That is, we're always receptive, always open to hear the Word of God. That even if you or I disagree on something, we have the willingness and the desire to sit down and study about that. I'm not going to close myself off to that. I'm going to push you away. Well, we're not in fellowship anymore. No. Fellowship is when we're willing to come together and continue to seek those things that are found in the Word. As long as I've got my Bible open, as long as my heart is soft, and as long as your Bible is open, as long as your heart is soft, then we are going to be in fellowship. We are we are able to pass the hearing test. But that's not the only test John gives us. Look again at our text. John gives us another test. Look in verse 5. 
Verse 5, John says, this is the message that we have heard from Him and we proclaim to you. There's more of that hearing. We're telling you about Jesus. You need to listen. That God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. What's the second test? John shows us in these verses that the second test is the walking test. And so we've all got our Bibles open. And we're all ready to hear. We've got that receptiveness to us. And while there are, I will say, there are some issues that maybe do take us a little longer to to find some commonality on. As long as we're studying, eventually we'll, we'll find some common ground. But I want to say, there are a lot of other issues in Scripture that are very clear and very decisive and very plain. What God teaches about the Christian walk, about moral choices that we must make, about the priorities in our lives, about the decision to put Christ on in baptism and those kinds of things, those sorts of things are clearly seen and they are clearly understood. And when you choose deliberately not to walk in those things, then according to verse 6, that means that you're walking in darkness. And if you're walking in darkness, then you cannot have fellowship with God, John says. This is exactly where I think that the social gospel is so very damaging to people. When people are convinced and they have decided in their mind that fellowship is is some kind of social activity that we do, then you know what? It doesn't matter if this guy's not living right. doesn't matter if he may be walking in darkness. He's got sin all in his life. He's making just a perfect mess of his life. Well, as long as we're on the same softball team together, and as long as we're having fun together, hey, at least we still have our fellowship. No, we don't. No, we don't. The test of fellowship is a willingness to walk in the light, verse 7 says. To walk according to the Word. Drop on down in chapter 2 again. Chapter 2, look in verse 3. John reinforces this there. He says, by this, by this we know that we have come to know Him, how? If we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, the word know here, K-N-O-W, that is a very close synonym for this word fellowship. You might even could substitute that in right here. Whoever says, I have fellowship with Him, but does not keep His commandments, he's a liar. Truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word, in Him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. John just keeps on pounding away at this idea all the way through five chapters. That you cannot somehow disregard all of the stuff that the Bible says, all that stuff that you heard, and then somehow maintain your relationship with Jesus. That doesn't work. You've got to take the stuff that you've heard and you've got to apply it. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the walk. Now can I just ask you right now, Christian, if I am not willing to apply the things that I have heard, which according to John means that I'm not in fellowship with God, and I'm not in fellowship with those apostles, then can I have fellowship with you? No, I cannot. You know, sometimes we use the word disfellowship. Josh Harris actually preached a wonderful sermon a couple of weeks ago and he used that term, disfellowship. Well, what does disfellowship mean? Well, in the language of 1 John chapter 1, it means that we don't share the walk in common anymore. And so what do we do? Well, eventually a time comes where we withdraw ourselves from that person. Why? Because our fellowship has been severed. It's been broken. Yet by that very same token, 
When that person chooses to stop walking in the darkness, and they decide, I want to start walking in the light once more, what do we do then? We receive them back. We receive them with open arms. We reaffirm our love for them. We do that because our fellowship has been restored. We're walking in the light together once again. That, that is the walking test. There's one more test that John gives us in this passage. And I think this test may in fact be the most important of all. And unfortunately, it is the one that I believe many times we are just determined not to do. Look in the last couple of verses. Verse 8. John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. His word is not in us. What is this final test of fellowship? Well, it is what I would call the confess test. You know, talking about that walking business. How many of us have ever been walking and we fall down? That happens to all of us. I've got a two-year-old. It happens all the time in our house. She's always tripping and falling over and she needs help to get back up. Spiritually speaking, how many of us have ever fell down while we were walking and we needed help getting back up? I hope we would be able to say that all of us have. Because the confess test is a willingness to acknowledge that sometimes I am going to fall. I know I'm going to fall. I'm walking the walk. I'm trying, pursuing it as diligently as I possibly can. But I am also keenly aware that the devil is hard at work in this world. And I know that I might not do everything exactly right all of the time. That I've got a whole lot to learn. I've got a lot that I need to grow in. That I may, in fact, sin and disappoint God. And when that happens, the confess test, how to pass that, is when I say, I will confess that. And I will seek God's help to lift me back up and to get back doing the wall. Yet you know and I know. I've met people in my life who are just bound and determined not to do that. They are just stubborn as all get out. In fact, you may even be one of those people. Maybe it's your pride that's getting in the way and that's hindering you from confessing your wrongs and humbling yourselves before the Lord. John says, though, that humble people, honest people, people who can see themselves as they really are, people who are willing to acknowledge their weaknesses, those are the ones who receive mercy and forgiveness, and those are the ones who maintain fellowship with God. And let's just be candid as we're talking about this confession stuff. That means that we're going to have to do this confessing thing pretty much all the time. I can't think of a day in my life that has ever went by where I didn't need to do this confessing stuff. If an imperfect creature like me is ever going to sustain a relationship with a perfect and holy God, then that's going to mean a whole lot of me bowing myself before the Lord and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I was wrong. God, I sinned. I violated Your Word. Forgive me, Lord. I'm so sorry for doing that. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. And as I say that, can you now start to see the problem with our two preachers from a little bit earlier? This guy over here that thinks that fellowship is all about having a good time and it's all fun. But in fact, fellowship may actually be the exact opposite of having a good time and having fun. Because fellowship may actually involve tears and gloom and sorrow as I prostrate myself before the throne of God begging for His mercy to forgive me of my sins. And then what about this guy over here? 
This guy over here that thinks that fellowship is all about living up to his standards, doing exactly the same things that he does, and doing it the same way that he does, and thinking the same way that he does. But what this guy forgets is that he needs mercy too. He needs the mercy of God. That he's going to fall down from time to time. That he needs to confess his sins, and that we are on this journey together. I may not be as far along as he is in that journey, but we are walking it together. In fact, in James chapter 5 and in verse 16, James says that sometimes not only are we going to need to confess those things to God, but James says sometimes we're going to need to confess those sins to one another and to pray for one another. My oh my. Wouldn't that be the mark of strong, sturdy fellowship? Whenever we are able to confess our faults one to another and pray earnestly for one another that we might be healed spiritually. We are on a journey together. And when we pass these three tests, to keep on hearing, and to keep on walking, and to keep on confessing, then I believe we are able to go on that journey hand in hand as we share in a spiritual relationship unlike anything else that this world has to offer and a relationship that ultimately will culminate in eternal glory. Acts 2 verse 42 speaks of fellowship. It's a beautiful Bible word. And it's even more beautiful when you understand the richness of it and what it truly means. Acts 2.42 says that those early Christians, they devoted themselves to fellowship. And I want that. I want that with God the Father. I want that with Jesus the Son. I want that with the apostles and all of the other faithful disciples who have ever gone on before. And you know what else? I want that with you too. The question is, do you want that fellowship? I sure hope that you do. But that can only come whenever we are first in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And the good thing about those folks in Acts chapter 2 who devoted themselves to fellowship is they show us how it's done. They show us how you get into fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And that is whenever we hear that word. Whenever we then act in faith, we repent of our sins and we are baptized in water for the remission of those sins. We then come into fellowship with God and with Jesus. The Lord then adds us to His church, which then puts us into fellowship with all of these people here. It puts us into fellowship with the saved of all time. What a wonderful privilege that is. You can have that blessing this very morning. You can know the joys and you can know the blessings of being a part of the family of God. If you're ready to accept that gracious offer, that gracious invitation, then this is your moment. Brother or sister, it may be that you you need to do that confessing thing that we talked about. There may be sin in your life because you're not walking the walk as you should. Or maybe you're not hearing as you should. Confess that to God. Confess that to your brothers and sisters. Let us help you and encourage you and pray with you and assist you in serving the Lord in a better way. We want to be in fellowship together. Let's do that. Let's do it right now. Do it while we stand and while we sing.